This is WexCast from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. I'm Melissa Starker, PR and Content Manager for the Wex. For this WexCast, we listen in on a phone call between classical pianist and composer Karen Walwyn, cellist Timothy Hawley, and drummer, composer, and Wexner Center Artist Residency Award recipient Mark Lomax II. As part of the curating work Lomax has been doing for the WEX this spring, he's bringing Holly and Walwyn to Columbus this Sunday, April 7th, for a performance of contemporary classical works by a roster of African-American composers that includes Lomax. Enjoy a wide-reaching conversation that touches on the lack of Black composers in the classical canon, the double jeopardy of driving while Black and while musical, and the amazing story of Florence Price, a 20th century composer whose work was lost and then found again. A price composition will also be part of Sunday's program. Hi, everybody out there in Wex Cast land. This is Dr. Mark Lomax, and I'm happy to be here with Dr. Karen Walwyn and Dr. Timothy Holly. They are some of the world's foremost interpreters of African-American composers and scholarship and all things good with black music, art music, and all things music. So we're happy to have the two of you here. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yes. So we're, we're excited to be on the phone with you today because you're going to come and do a concert for us in April, and we're really looking forward to that. Dr. Walwyn, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to the work of interpreting the compositions of African-American composers, and was that a part of your scholarship? How, how did all of that fall into place for you? Thank you for that question, uh, Dr. Lomax. It takes me back a number of years, actually, to when I was at the University of Michigan. Um, Dean Willis Patterson, who was my mentor, and probably for uh, Dr. Holly as well, um, came to me one day. (laughs) (laughs) He came up to me one day right in front of me in the hall and said, how many African-American composers do you know? And I had a blank look in my eye, and I, I just smiled with complete guilt. I didn't know any. And except for probably just the usual name, William Gretzfield, and that was probably about it. And so... He took me into his office, and I was overwhelmed with the scores, the numerous volumes of scores by composers of African descent, and I just charged through them and, and thought, oh my God, what a treasure. And um, my next thought was, I've got to find a way to start recording the music. And I will say that as I was growing up, in the classical world, if you will, doing your usual piano competitions, none of that repertoire would be a part of the competition list. And so various teachers down the road would not necessarily have become familiar with uh, such names that I am familiar with now. And so when I had the opportunity to look through the music and become attached to so many of the works. Um, it was it was just a matter of moments before I was able to win an award to begin the process of the recordings. And it helped me grow as a musician on so many levels because number one, I got a chance to understand more personally the history of our time, our culture, what some of our ancestors have gone through, and you learn so much from the writing, and not just reading lyrics or text, but truly just the actual writing. And then, as well, I started to become so ingrained in the music that somehow it, it turned on a light for myself, and that's when I became inspired to begin writing myself. That would happen a number of years later. But um, I think for me, what is very important each time that I play, that I share some of the history of the various composers so their stories get out and that the music can become 
a part of our time now and not just during Black History Month, but just a normal conversation about whether it's Lawrence Price, Amir Leon, uh, about the sales store, that they're part of the same conversation of like Beethoven, Mozart, Chopin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's my that's my, my lifetime hope. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Holly. Okay. Uh, while Karen was giving her answer to your first question, that gave me a chance to kind of uh, rummage around my very junky office. We've been on spring break here at North Carolina Central University, so while I was uh, just resting up at home, our piano technician does the retuning of our pianos in the building while we're all away on spring break, so I just happened to come to my office after my uh, radio show and I see four or five piles of paper that used to be on top of my upright piano in the middle of my floor. So I'm gradually trying to reorganize or just put the piles back where they were before. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, and you know that, that gave me a chance to, to both stall and to um, grab a hold of a few things that will help me answer the same question that, that Karen answered. Uh, first of all, the name Willis C. Patterson, he really should be canonized uh, right away. He has been something of a musical and personal godfather to at least two generations of African-American musicians that have come through Ann Arbor to the uh, School of Music, Theater, and Dance, as well as to the School of the Rackham School of Graduate Studies. I met Karen for the first time at the University of Michigan, but the interesting thing is that I don't think, and Karen, you can correct me on this, I don't think you had come to the university yet. I had been there, but I was between degree programs, so I was kind of in and kind of out of school, and you were on your way, so to speak, so. um, In the 86, but I was at the 85 symposium. Were you there? Right. Right, yeah, that's why I remember meeting you there. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. But anyway, to get back to Mark's question, I come from a, uh, a rather unique family um, of musicians, of public school teachers, of uh, preachers, of church folks. So having a sense of history and uh, a desire for historical information is really been in the family DNA, you know, in as many directions as I can imagine. And I grew up in a home where it was really kind of an expected thing, number one, that there would be singing going on. My mother is a pianist. My father comes from a musical family. His oldest brother was Major Holly, who's an internationally renowned jazz bassist. And, you know, he uh, has at least two sisters who have either gone into public school teaching or to advanced degree work out of all places, the University of Michigan. So, again, the sense of history, uh, a desire for education. And somehow, I think maybe through the CBS Black Composers series, I just happened to have found a, um, a set of compact discs that I ordered on Amazon, and it's the entire 10-volume series of those recordings that were released back in the mid-1970s. And I began to see and hear names like William Grant Still and Ulysses K., you know, by way of those recordings. And my mom and dad would, you know, when they would see those recordings in the 33 RPM version, you know, they would purchase and bring those records home, one for them to listen to, but also for, you know, for me to uh, get curious about. I did my undergraduate work at Baldwin Wallace College, which is now Baldwin Wallace University in the Cleveland, Ohio area. Mm -hmm. And so I was 25 miles away from Oberlin College, which the city of Oberlin, Ohio, has a uh, a most distinguished African-American historical tradition. It was a stop on the Underground Railroad, and of course I learned about that connection early on. I happen to have an aunt that still lives there. And 
you know, I came into contact with the name of a composer by the name of Howard Swanson, who was a native of, he actually he was born in Georgia, but his family moved from Georgia to Cleveland as mm-hmm. part of the Great Migration. And Howard Swanson was a pianist, but he was also a composer, and he attended the Cleveland Institute of Music in the early 1930s. And he wrote a suite for cello and piano that I found out about through uh, a book written by a, another grand teacher of mine in the mid-Michigan area uh, where I began to play the cello. And once I found out that there were actually pieces by black composers that were commercially available, that opened the door for me that really would eventually become a doctoral dissertation. And again, you know, I I told you before we started, you know, there's no such thing as a short answer for me (laughs) because, you know, you find out how connected everything is, uh, whether it's historical information, musical influence, pedagogical influence, um, you know, the, the matter of legacy just in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And, you know, as soon as I find out more about the, the legacies in Columbus, Ohio, I'm, you know, fascinated to begin making as many possible connections between the two as I can. So I hope that long answer is a start. Yeah, so you both talk about Ann Arbor, and I learned after school, really, about the tradition of not just composers of African descent, but performers coming out of that environment. Talk a bit about what that was like at the University of Michigan to to have an environment where you saw people like yourself working to be excellent, to, to interpret, to compose, to present music in general, but then to have a guy like Dr. Patterson who can point you in the direction. I mean, my experience here at Ohio State was completely opposite, and, and most of my composer and performer friends uh, did not have that benefit. So can you talk a bit about that? It, it, you both brought it up, and, and, and I'd like to hear a little more. I can say for myself, it was like a completely other world. First of all, not really ever seeing a student majoring in composition, an African-American student majoring in composition Mm -hmm. until I arrived to the University of Michigan. That was a shock to my system. (laughs) I actually, looking back in my memory bank, my undergrad, University of Miami, is also where I did my master's. I don't recall seeing any African-American vocalists who were majoring in classical music, instrumental music. There was one that was a Cuban-African pianist, and outside of him, that was it. So coming to the University of Michigan was, it was the universe of its own, and it was so exciting to see people like myself, we, so many of us had the same experience. So we, it was like a, a brand new family for me that was initiated because of that, just just from that. And then, you know, to go on and, and grow alongside with them, sharing ideas of what we'd like to do individually as musicians, as people of color, the responsibilities that we would take thereafter. Those are a lifetime's responsibility, something that perhaps is unique inside of that time period. Yes, Karen, I concur. Um, I arrived at, in Ann Arbor in the fall of 1982, and at the time that I was there, I began to meet uh, students who had graduated, finished their degree, some were still you know, living in Ann Arbor, or as we might call it, where they were hanging out waiting for the next phase to begin. The thing that amazed me so when I look back at that time is that through an amazing uh, degree of, you know, collaborative efforts, African-American musicians, both from as close as Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti and Detroit and as far away as the Bahamas, California, you know, the other side of the, of the country were drawn to Ann Arbor, Michigan. And 
and again, I have to give uh, credit to Willis Patterson, uh, his longtime administrative assistant, Faye Burton. James Standifer uh, was also on the faculty at that time. There was a, a small cluster of African-American faculty and administration that were at the university at the time. And, you know, having their presence on the faculty and administration and being able to both personally and, for lack of a better word, aesthetically bond with them, to know that here you are in this amazing place that at best, you know, certainly want you to root for the Wolverines against Ohio State, but also... <laughs> Um, much more importantly, they want you to represent your people, both your individual family, and if the opportunity should arise to travel and perform internationally, you're representing your country. And also, I think on the not-so-positive not so side, to be at a place like the University of Michigan, I'm sure Ohio State is this way as well, there is this strange notion of the unspoken and sometimes unfortunately spoken question, why are you here? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's this scandal that is presently in the news right now, and that scandal by itself, even though we're still in day two or day three of the story, when you go to a place like a Michigan or Ohio State, and whether you come from another big school or a small school like I went to, there is this feeling that now that you're here, you got to earn your keep, you got to prove yourself, you got to show that you know how to play Brahms and Mozart and Tchaikovsky. Mm -hmm before we will even let you talk about William Grant Still or Ulysses K. Mm -hmm. And we haven't even asked the question of how relevant they are. You know, so we're basically standing on an iceberg and it looks like, you know, this huge block of ice, but it's only really 2% of the entire mass of ice. Yeah. I mean, it's a deep question. And, um, you know, I remember when you and I first met, we really talked about that issue right away, you know, and, and how it's both a matter of representation. Certainly when you get to a place like that, you do have to find your community. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the community will look like you do. And because of that, that'll become your community. But even then, there's some other very interesting variables that go into how secure that community really is. You know, the thing that I am proudest of, to a certain extent, is that when I arrived at Michigan, I arrived thinking that I was one of the only. And one of the first people I met was a gentleman named Ken Whitley, who was an African-American cellist out of the uh, D.C. I think he's uh, teaching in the Baltimore area now. But to see somebody who looked like me that played my instrument, that immediately gave me a bit of a lift. It also gave me a challenge because that brother could play. You know? <laughs> and, you know, the, the cool thing is that, yes, we greet and embrace one another, but there is this other unspoken dictum saying, you know, we're all representing ourselves and each other. Bring your best game because if you don't, we'll let you know one way or the other. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned a conversation we had earlier, and I think I'm, you and I met back in 04? 2006. 2006. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, you were being the musician. I was being a low level administrator when I met you. <laughs> <laughs> but still, our conversation. This was here I, at Ohio State. Was, uh, I brought a group of uh, honors program students yep. from NC Central up to Ohio State for their, the Office of Minority Affairs has an annual graduate school visitation day. Mm -hmm. You know, it, uh, I mean, and, and I, tip, I tip my hat to the Buckeyes as far as minority affairs because they reach out to HBCUs all around the Mid-Atlantic and the South. I met folks that had dri driven up from New Orleans for this graduate mm -hmm. school visitation mm -hmm. day, and I met a 
Wow. And again, it was just amazing to meet and hear them share their, you know, firsthand stories of going through that hurricane. Yeah, and it it was it was those early conversations that I had with you that really sparked um, my interest in the fact that there were African American composers because that's just not part of many curriculums. So it brings me to my next question, Dr. Walwyn. You also compose, but you and Tim both interpret the work of living composers oftentimes. And one of the ways I got engaged with your work is through a recording you did of Ellis Marcellus, who Ah, I toured with. Yeah. Yeah. So when he found out that I was a composition student, he's like, oh, yeah, I I do classical stuff, too. (laughs) And so he he turned me on to that recording. I was like, oh, this is cool. So can can you both... Tunes of, uh, oh yeah, 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 and I, I think the record is Dark Fires. Dark Fires that was on the second volume. Right, right. So, can the two yeah. of you um, speak to what that relationship is like as musicians with a new work and being able to engage the composer because she or he is still with us? That's right. So, the first thing that comes to my mind is that I can simply ask, how can I best represent you or your music? Mm-hmm. Um, I ask questions, you know, tell me about your background, your, some of your life experiences, some of your philosophies, and from there I was able to see it in the music. And what a, what a treasure, because if you can imagine, I was just telling a student as soon as I was born, my father was playing Bach. And so we hear it in our ears for hundreds of years ahead of time. It's been around. So by the time I'm eight years old, I already know the tune, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so when I get to learn the notes, it's just a matter of applying the digits to the ear that already has memorized the partita or the French suite or and even the prelude of you. But I didn't have the opportunity to speak with Bob and find out, you know, it was a little crazy. He passed away a little while ago. It was amazing to be able to literally and, and continuously speak with a number of the composers, you know, to get to know them over the years, much later after the fact that I've, I've done the recordings, but to still get to know and understand. It, it takes a lifetime to truly understand another work, mm-hmm. another one's work. It isn't yeah. just that recording and put it down. You, you get to know the works and the composer behind the work over years. That was a, a gift to me. A, a quick follow-up, Dr. Walwyn. How is that different from interpreting your own work? I find that it's hard to write for myself, and when I do, I often have to put a different lens on. I can't um, right. think as a composer anymore. <laughs> so right. how does that work for you? That's very difficult because, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm looking at a challenge right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be playing uh, part of my work at the concert, but on the one hand, I only look at it from, oh my God, this is emotionally hard. Why do they do this to my Yes, yes, yes. I'm thinking, why would I do that? And then I have to go back and read my own program notes. Oh yeah, I remember now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
So, Dr. Holly, you and living composers, I mean, I'm always in awe when in conversation you casually say, well, you know, Hailstork sent me a piece or, or uh, T.J. Anderson or, or Trevor Weston or any. How, what is that process like for you? Well, the process, I think of it as, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you remember what your church family or your neighborhood growing up was like? You know, the people who you see regularly on a daily or a weekly or a monthly basis, you know, you build up a, 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 rapport, a rapport and a familiarity. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, again, I, I go back to um, both my high school years and 1985. Those, you know, those two periods of time uh, have just been crucial because, um, you know, for instance, my mother, who is a pianist, she met and worked with a African-American violinist by the name of Sandra Billingsley, who was a graduate student at Michigan State University when I was in high school. Uh, for Sandra's degree recital, she did a violin sonata written by this guy, Adolphus Hailstork. You know, the first time I heard the name, I thought, wow, that's a funny name. And then I found out he's African-American. Mm-hmm. Little did I know that I would not only meet him less than a decade later, but that I would get to play some of his music. And back at that symposium in 1985, that was the first time I had met. And I tried to call him Dr. Hellstork, and he just, you know, he grabbed me by the elbow and said, Tim, call me a dog. <laughs> you know, so there's just that sense of immediate rapport that I've always appreciated about him. And, you know, at that same event, I met David Baker. Mm-hmm. I met, uh, I, I met Hale Smith four years before that. But I met him again at that event. I met T.J. Anderson for the first time in Ann Arbor. I met Coleridge Taylor Perkinson for the first time in Ann Arbor at that symposium. So, you know, my sense of almost, you know, name-dropping rapport really traces back to that particular event. And the one thing that that I began doing is um, when I would meet a composer, I would always inquire after hearing, maybe it was an art song or a choral work, I would inquire of what works they'd written for strings, cello in particular. Mm. And by the time I got to Ann Arbor as a graduate student, I at least knew that Leslie Adams had written a cello sonata. Of course, I had already had Howard Swanson's music in print, Mm -hmm. and I had gotten wind that Hale Smith had written a cello sonata. Uh, not knowing that, again, that will become part of my dissertation, you know. But I would say that as a performer, I concur with Karen. You know, it is uh, a very interesting experience to deal with the notes that a composer who is still living and paying taxes mm-hmm. has left for you to, to try to figure out. You know, when a composer passes on, uh, and really even before they pass on, once they finish uh, composing a piece of music, in a sense it's like a child that's successfully born. Mm-hmm. You know, they are now living life, you know, on their own terms, even though those terms for a newborn baby are highly dependent. But a piece of music it goes through the same process of taking on a life of its own. It fortunately is dependent upon a sensitive performer. Uh, who is not only sensitive to whatever the composer has written, but also to, I guess, a desire to represent what the composer is wishing and trying to communicate to the world through this piece. I appreciate what you said, and it brings uh, very close to me because when I was working on the music of, I think it was um, David Baker, there was Mm. no prior recording. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I like another couple of other works, in particular, David Baker, no Sibelius, no finale, mm-hmm. nothing. Mm-hmm. That for me was like, 
the idea that you just purchased 400,000 bricks and they're laying in a pile and it's up to you without any architect assistance or guidance to build your castle. Mm -hmm. What is it going to look like? Where do we start? You know, uh, the foundation, the columns, how to, the supporting beams, all of that. And, and Karen, of course, that's after we ask that one question, and most performers will never admit to asking of a composer, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I hear that all the time. <laughs> Good, I'm sorry. It's a tricky 
finale so that if there is a note discrepancy, then it's the composer's job to work all that out, presumably, before, you know, it goes into final PDF format. You know, that kind of thing. I want to get to why you both think it's important to do the work that you're doing, but uh, I want to also acknowledge what, for some, uh, may seem to be a resurgence of popularity for Florence Price. And I know, Dr. Walwyn, you have recorded and are performing her work. Can you talk a bit about that? Thank you for that question. I had the honor to record the premiere recording of the concerto back in 2011 in Chicago with the New Black Music Repertory Ensemble. Um, I hope I got the, the, the full name correct. Um, under the direction of Morris Sims and Monica Harrison. And um, that score, which had been basically reconstructed by Trevor Weston, um, it was an amazing, an amazing accomplishment because if I understand correctly, the score had been lost or damaged in the fire. I don't know which. Mm. But there was a piano score for the second piano from which he reconstructed the orchestra part. And so to be able to have that recording finally realized was something that I think otherwise would never have been done. And this goes back to the history of Florence Price and the family intention that the family did not want Florence Price, the identity of her as an African-American to be recognized. Mm. Um, they wanted to have her pass. And so, of course, with her titles, so many of her titles are clearly um, describing the times back in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. And the, the music, the writing of music is clearly depicting those days of slavery. You hear a lot of uh, Negro spiritual-like phrases, uh, harmonies that are pulled from those types of songs that were sung, and you, you can't escape it. So there was a 30-year period where a lot of her music was just simply lost. And so when the music was discovered approximately seven years ago, the eventual discovery was made because a family that purchased a home found these manuscripts outside um, on the patio. Mm. And uh, if I'm recollecting the uh, details accurately, it, I believe that house was owned by the grandson. Therefore, it would imply that he was the one that had the music left out on the patio. Mm. Don't know how many years, but the actual home itself was quite destroyed. It had, mm. I think a tree had fallen onto the roof, creating a hole, and a lot of the interior was completely destroyed. But some 30 years later, the music was in perfect shape. Wow. So you can't help but want to make sure that that music gets recorded and, and heard. And so it was the recovery of the music that would lead to the New York Times article and several other uh, orchestras now have been in contact with me to find out how to get a hold of the score. Sherman now had the rights to the score. Um, but in fact, I think it was uh, an orchestra from, a symphony orchestra from Australia that contacted me two weeks ago, uh, looking for the score. So it's amazing that, you know, around the world, literally, her music is being sought after. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's recognized as this first 
female African-American composer. And even though it's a few decades late, <laughs> later, <laughs> what, a, what a way to, to bring in the 400th anniversary you know, to yeah. the arrival of enslaved Africans to this country. This is, it's great. Yes. So thank you for mentioning the 400th um, anniversary, because it perfectly sets up the the question as to why it's important to play this music. I I think for those of us who have studied in the classical or Western classical tradition, we are always kind of pounded in the head as to why that music is important whether it's important for the sake of its importance <laughs> or it has some you know, extra musical import or the music itself because of the craft and everything else. And, and we don't hear that with respect to African-American composers. So can you talk about why, in, in your minds, it's important to engage this work and share it with the public? I think what, what comes to my mind immediately is the scarcity of recordings and or the opportunities to hear live performances of this music. If we don't do it, no one will. Hmm. And another 400 years later, there'll be no record that there was actual classical music written by African-American composers. And so, as I mentioned earlier, growing up as a classical pianist, it starts with elementary school, um, you know, the John Thompson series. Those pieces, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, it would be wonderful that there are other method books that include comparative pieces that are by African-Americans inside of those method books uh, that the African-American composers can be included on the piano competition list because those tail competition lists are what makes the career of a pianist. Mm. And there's your, your usual five concerti, Tchaikovsky, the Rachmaninoff, you know, Ravel. And if you're not playing one of those, then it, it's like you're totally ignored. Mm. And so I've had colleagues that have told me when they did try to play uh, work by Swatch Price, on their senior recitals, it was, it was laughed at. Hmm. So the opportunity to have this music out there and become a part of the usual repertoire, not just over there on the corner, but when you when you need to be reminded that uh, we have Black History Month, probably most of us can sing the Ninth Symphony by Beethoven, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or remember the motive from Beethoven's Fifth. And he's not from here. Right. He was not from here. Why Why can any kid, probably, maybe not in this generation, because we don't hear this music today on the TV like we did you know, 20 years ago, but 20, 30 years ago, why could any kid sing that? Why, we should be able to sing something by Dorothy Moore. We should be able to sing something that is, if you will, melodic from uh, an adult sales book work. Mm-hmm. It should be alongside those composers that we are more accustomed to. It has to be done. Dr. Holly? Yeah. I think that, number one, our national, regional, and even local history is just shot through with so many uh, glaring ironies. Um, Number one, we always have to remember that a piece of music or a composer's name becomes a household word because somebody has decided, in my house, this is who's important. Mm -hmm. Um, We know of composers like Beethoven and Mendelssohn and Mozart because the communities of immigrants that came to this country that valued that music and that musical tradition brought it with them and practiced and supported it once they got here. And whether you're talking about the New York Philharmonic, the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Chicago Symphony, even the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, and certainly the Columbus Symphony Orchestra, you know, 
when you look into the histories of all of those artistic organizations, you can find that decided degree of support. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess another thing is when we talk about the concert music of African-American composers, we're not talking about a tradition that stretches all the way back to 
obviously. But again, I'm thankful for the opportunity to, one, celebrate these composers. Uh, I think this may be the first program that I've ever played where every composer that I've programmed is still with us, as far as I know. Wow. Um, and, um, you know, it's it's uh, very interesting because, um, again, the, the oldest piece on my, on my part of the program uh, was written in 1965. Hmm. You know, so every piece on the program is younger than me. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, uh, you know, we we've all had to deal with that. You know, what I call the, the DWM. You know, tendency. You know that the the only music worth listening to has to be written by somebody dead, somebody white, and somebody male. Mm-hmm. And one that's not true. Uh, there are still there's still plenty of music. Uh, one yours, uh, two that of say composers like Terrence Blanchard. And Trevor Weston and Karen Walwyn. Uh, I mean, you know, the the folks that are still saying stuff still got lots of stuff to say, and I'm I'm very thankful to to uh, at least be in contact with uh, those potential opportunities to um, you know to convey their message as best I can. So, as a as a final thought. Again, thank you both for taking time to, to talk with us. But we operate on college campuses with young folks, and I'm hoping that some of those young people will check out this podcast. And I always get the question, whether it's improvised music, often called jazz or Negro spirituals, you almost had me uh, line out a charge to keep I have. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you know they, they always ask, why is this relevant? You know, we have Drake, we have Future, we have Migos, we have Cardi B. Why is it relevant for me to listen to a Karen Walwyn or um, a Trevor Weston piece or uh, Dorothy Rudd Moore or Tanya Leon? So can you share some final thoughts about the relevance of the work? I think for me, when I am writing, I am actually writing about the times almost as they're happening. Mm-hmm. For example... Yeah. When I was at um, in Columbia, South Carolina, oddly, two days before the shooting wow. at Mother Emanuel, mm. I had just been down there for a funeral a very dear friend of mine. Uh, her father passed, and I just happened to spend some time, not with just the family, but of all places, I was at Goodwill. She likes to go to Goodwill. <laughs> and people from different walks of life just started talking to me. They were white, they were Spanish, they were black, just making chit-chat. Nothing, you know, of significance, just casual, but very warm and ungracious conversations. So I drove away, and I think it was really the next morning. It was literally within 24 hours that I heard of the tragedy that happened, and I, I just couldn't have imagined how that warm and very human environment that I had just left had been so devastated Mm. by one person that was so incredibly egregious and and, and the word selfish is a gift, you know, to, to describe the atrocities that he would commit. But it was because of my time spent there that I felt personally attacked and I drove back down. I had the opportunity to speak with one of the um, elders of Mother Emmanuel and he told me the history of the church. He drove me around Charleston, told me the history of um, African Americans in Charleston and I had a story to write. Mm. And so my work is one representation of what happened, not just that day, but the history of how we arrived to that day. Um, other composers of other genres will have their interpretations, but I feel that I have something to say. And why not celebrate in 
the honoring of those lives that were lost in the way that I have been guided to share. Yeah. To answer the same question, because uh, number one, as a member of the faculty here at North Carolina Central University, I'm dealing, dealing with students, most of whom are not music majors, and I'm, I'm hitting them with music that they've never heard before and have not really seen as relevant. One of the things I do in my survey of music class is, you know, the, the first thing they hear from me is not really music, but it's uh, a, a conversation with Dr. Harry Edwards, who was the architect of the silent gesture 50 years ago at the 1968 uh, Olympics in mm -hmm. Mexico City with Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Mm -hmm. And in this conversation, uh, Dr. Edwards makes the point that young people today don't have a sense of history. And he, he explains what he means by saying that because of technology, the need to remember and the need to see history as relevant is getting lost because they have come of age in the midst of so much technological change. So they're asking these questions, why does this, why does it matter for me to remember this cognitively? Mm -hmm. Or even to write things down now. I mean, you know, uh, you know, the students that sit in my classes, you know, uh, I'm sure I see some that uh, have turned on their voice recorder apps or, you know, I'll invite them to take pictures of my, you know, whiteboard notes. But many of them are not writing things down. So, um, you know, it, it is a, a very interesting notion of, you know, how do we go about deeming things as relevant? We do so by remembering. And whether you're a musician or not, what you really are saying when you say you like the music of Duke Ellington or T.J. Anderson, or David Baker, or Charlie Parker, is that you like the feeling that you got when you first heard it, because you remember that feeling that's wrapped up in the notes. So the notion of a student coming to a concert to hear music of living African-American composers, I'm sure from their perspective may sound almost like something of a circus act. You know, living African American composers. <laughs> you know, they're not in cages. They might not even be at the concert, apart from Mr. Dr. Lomax. But in a sense, they are through the music that's being played. Mm -hmm. And uh, I will go so far as to be blunt and say this: they're as black as you are, mm -hmm. or. If you're not black, they're as American as you are. Or if you're not American, they're as human as you are. Mm -hmm. And just as we earn the right to speak by listening, these composers have earned the right to be heard through the unique experience of the concert. And if you walk away from that experience, then you really run the risk of contributing to your own sense of cultural poverty. Mm. And, you know, we should, you know, well, we don't have to go very far to be reminded that, you know, we're not the first world country that we've, you know, that we thought we had been all along. Mm -hmm. You know, we, mm -hmm. we have some problems. And um, I don't know that these composers have the ultimate solution to those problems, but they're connected to it, you know. Um, and again, you can't make people want to sit down and listen. You can only invite them. Yeah. yeah. Well, pianist and composer Dr. Karen Walwyn, thank you for joining us today for our podcast. We appreciate thank having you. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> and cellist educator Dr. Timothy Holly, my brother, my friend, thank you for being here with us today. Uh, my pleasure, sir. It's always good to gather with you. I look forward to uh, driving up that way. And, uh, and uh, you know, as, as, as you've always known, my coming to Columbus is never just an academic or an artistic exercise. I got family there. That's so, right. That's you right. know, got to come see my cousin, who, is, uh, who I got to call and check up on 
and reminder that I'm uh, that I'll be up that way. If she doesn't ask me first, I'm sure she'll ask me first. <laughs> all right, yeah. wonderful. Well, I'll see you all soon. Thanks for listening to WexCast. For more information about the Wexner Center for the Arts and its programming, go to wexarts.org.